if he would have told me when I talked to him, look, I had sex with her that night, she spent the night, and then we fell asleep, and then we woke up and I had sex with her again in the morning, I would have closed this case that day. Is that by saying that, by saying, by blaming it on the jury pool, you're essentially saying, we're not going to stop sexual assault, period. I mean, by taking that tag, they're essentially saying to perpetrators everywhere, you are free to rape because we think it's pretty hard to prove these cases. Was it a criminal sexual assault? No. Is he guilty of being, you know, less than a gentleman? Absolutely. Who in the hell is writing their opinion in a report, but I'm hoping it's not our agency. I'm Melissa Ann McDaniel. I am a best-selling author, women's personal empowerment coach, and sexual assault survivor. I'm also a doctoral student in leadership studies. So I was 20 years old attending college when it happened to me. I was in college on a full-ride scholarship. I received a scholarship to be a first-generation college graduate, and for me that was something really important. Um, I was down at the park where all of the college kids hang out, where you play frisbee, people were slacklining, it was right along the bay, so it was so beautiful. And I was running down the path, and I had a man come up to me who appeared to be just like any other college student, and we start talking and exchange numbers. Um, because I didn't know him the first time that I hung out with him, I wanted to be with my friends. So I took him kayaking with all of my friends. I don't know how many days after that was, and things seemed to be fine. Um, we seemed to hit it off and hung out a few more times. And then one day I got a really bad cold, and he came to my house to make me chicken noodle soup. And he told me that my soup was going to taste extra salty. And he kept saying it over and over again. And I didn't understand why. I ate this soup and I just remember all of a sudden my head got so heavy. All I could do was lay it down in my hands at the table. And eventually I remember getting up from the table and going into my bedroom. And I left this man that I didn't really know in my living room. Um, I went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night and went out to the living room and he was there on my computer and I said, well, why don't you just come to bed? Um, we had not had sex prior to this. Uh, we had made out, but sex wasn't something that I wanted with him and he knew that. Um, when he came to bed, he raped me. Um, and as I was trying to get him off of me, he told me he was doing it because he loved me. Um, I remember like my reaction that I thought I would have was to be like freaking out. Like in my mind, when something like that happens, you're like screaming and freaking out. And I remember trying to push him off of me, but I wasn't strong enough. Um, and then when he finally got off of me, I got up and I went to the restroom and I cried, but I didn't want him to see me really crying. When I woke up the next morning, he was gone. I had sent him an email um, saying that I was 50% to blame because in my mind, it, it felt easier to own what had happened versus blaming him. I told one of my best friends and she very just kindly and calmly said, no, this was rape. This was not your fault. 
I didn't report right away. I didn't quite know what to do. Um, so I made an appointment with the school counselor. The school counselor, they sent me up with a woman who was an intern at the time. She was very timid. I remember just sobbing in the chair, not knowing what to do, how to move forward. Um, and her advice to me was that if I reported it, it was my choice if I chose to report it, but that if I reported it, it, it would be harder on me than if I didn't. And so there I was so conflicted, like I just wanted somebody to tell me what to do, which I know she can't tell me what to do, but in that moment, I, I didn't know what to do. I had missed some of my math class and so she wrote a note for me to take to my math professor um, to excuse me from the absences. On the note, it didn't say what had happened or anything. It just said that I was excused. I remember walking down the hallway to meet with my math professor and I gave him the note and he looked at me and he said, anybody can get a note from the counselor. You're not excused. And I remember saying, well, do you want me to tell you what happened? And he looked at me and he said, I don't care what happened. You're not excused. And I just shattered into a million pieces and got up and left. Because of his reaction, I just decided to stop talking. Because if that is how my faculty and the administrators were going to react to me, I, I didn't have the strength to keep going on. Like I did not have the strength to go and face each of them for them to tell me they don't care. After I reported it to the police, they had me come down and look through mugshots. And I remember seeing his face in the mugshot. They told me that basically everything he told me was a lie except for his name. He was actually on probation. He had done it to a minor in California and he wasn't supposed to be in Washington state. And so I had to move because I was scared for my safety. Um, so I left school. The professor who told me he didn't care what had happened to me never reached out to me or apologized or anything. I don't even know that there was a place I could report at that time. It doesn't mean it didn't exist, but you would think if I went to the counselors, they would show me the resources of where I could report. Um, but I wasn't really given any resources. I was just basically told, well, if you report, it's going to be worse on you and your life's going to be miserable and make it harder. My name is Carolyn, and my daughter was raped in college. Another problem with the Title IX process is that it was supposed to be completed in a timely manner, with the initial report being filed in one or two months. Instead, it took six months for the investigative report to be submitted. At that point, my daughter reached her limit and had to stop participating in the process because of how traumatizing it was. She begged the Title IX office to let our own private Title IX lawyer be her representative and to proceed with all of the many statements my daughter had previously completed for the office. But the school refused and dropped her case and let the rapist go free. Now, since there were other victims involved from the night my daughter was raped, and they continued to participate in the hopes of getting a bit of justice, their cases were proceeding at the same slow pace. I know it took an additional two-plus months after a report was filed for their cases to go before the hearing panel. So by the end, the entire Title IX process stretched out for more than eight months 
before final decisions were reached. Melissa and Carolyn bring up so much about the way universities handle reports of rape that are repeated from campus to campus. Never-ending investigations designed to wear students down, dragging on for multiple semesters when policies clearly state that they need to be finished in a shorter time limit, campus counselors that discourage students from reporting because remember those Clary Act numbers? A simply callous lack of care for students who are living through the worst days of their lives. No mention of real resources, options, safety planning, anything. Investigators who, if they're involved or notified at all, just don't get it and don't make acceptable accommodations for students who have suffered severe trauma. Both Melissa and Carolyn's daughter withdrew from the universities they attended after their perpetrators raped them. Shortly after Melissa left her school, her rapist raped another student there. Because rapists are most often recidivists and, you know, they do that kind of thing. I also cannot overstate how horrifically my university failed me, even though they actually did technically find for me, in the most cowardly way of all time ever, which I'll get into later. I'm ashamed to even be a student there, and more so as time passes, as they are more consistently called out for failing others and as they pretend to instate changes with some really great lip service that is never actually followed through on with any amount of action that's meaningful in any way at all. The ironic thing about all of this to me is that it was the university and the administration itself that truly failed me. The majority of the people, the vast majority, minus maybe like one and a half people, who were actually in my department, which the professor was also in, have consistently demonstrated support and belief in me. I'll talk a little bit about that at the end, different ways that if you're in this position, especially as a faculty or staff member, or even as a person who's going to school with somebody else, how you can demonstrate support for that person. But for now... This wouldn't be the kind of podcast that I set out for it to be without talking about all of the grave injustices and failures that I encountered along the way that every single other university student who is sexually assaulted is also very likely to encounter should they happen to report to their university what happened. But really, I just want to be clear that when I'm talking about this and when I'm talking about the way that universities respond, I'm referring specifically to Title IX offices which are, in most cases, part of HR, human resources, not independent bodies, which is devastating to this process. It's such an injustice, because what do human resources do? They run damage control for the university. The Title IX investigators and administrators, these are not people of integrity. These are the people that are on every single campus making sure that no matter what happens, no matter how horrifically they have a survivor suffer, that no matter what, at the end of the day, the most important thing to them is that their university looks good on paper. And it's really sad that they're missing the whole point on this. Given that rapists are at every single university, and they're gonna be around, and the best thing that you can do when somebody reports rape is thoroughly investigate it, and then when you realize that the rapist committed the crime that was as reported by the student, to fire them for exactly that purpose, to show a backbone and to demonstrate to people around the country that your university stands up to this kind of situation, 
they just don't do it because they see those Clariac numbers rising higher and higher by the year as a threat. According to the delegate from Endray on campus that I spoke to, that's simply not how this should be looked at. I think a number of institutions um, misunderstand uh, the importance of this data. So when they see, you know, like high numbers of reporting, they're like, oh my goodness, um, this is going to signal to our trustees and our parents and our alumni that our campus is not safe. Instead, they're really misunderstanding this data and they're actually misunderstanding what this data is showing. So when you have high rates of reporting, it's actually showing that your campus trusts your school administration. Because we know that sexual violence is happening anyway, and that the reporting numbers aren't actually reflective of the number of instances that are happening on campus, more that the reporting, uh, those reporting rates are reflective of student trust. And so we see a lot of institutions really misunderstand this data and misunderstand how this data is an opportunity um, to show parents, alumni, and trustees that students trust the administration to address campus sexual assault in a meaningful way. Um, because again, it's happening, it's just whether or not a student trusts their administration enough to do something about it. So having a 0.0003% reporting rate definitely does not signify trust in the university. And that's for good reason. I asked Michael Dolce to explain a little bit more about how universities can harm students after they report that they've been sexually assaulted. What is it exactly about these quote-unquote investigations makes it so difficult for students to continue school? depending on the integrity of the process and the commitment of the people in the process to finding the truth. Um, the university investigation can, in many instances, simply be deficient. It can be, it, 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 they're oftentimes far less thorough than they should be or could be. Um, and what, what we see in many cases is that the university has simply understaffed the investigative function and the disciplinary function so that it takes forever um, to complete an investigation or an investigation is superficially complete but all of these stones have not been unturned, shall we say. And I just want to take a second to point out that for certain universities who claim to only have 14 sexual assault reports to investigate, this shouldn't be a problem. Um, so we will find students who get frustrated and give up on the disciplinary process when they've reported someone who's committed a sex crime because months and months will go by um, and they will, they will be left, to, to left on their own and, and feel that no one has taken them seriously. Um, I had at least one client in my practice who withdrew from the university uh, while waiting for the university to finally conduct a disciplinary hearing against the perpetrator. Um, and during that entire period of time did not have the benefit of any kind of an on-campus restraining order against the perpetrator. And like I mentioned before, we know that this is not a unique scenario. Like I said before, I've yet to meet a single person who actually had their whole entire reporting process and investigative process completed in the amount of time that was stated by the university was their policy. For example, in my university, it was only supposed to take up to 60 to 90 days. It dragged on for seven months. At that point, that's an entire school year that you're having to go through this entire process. 
And I think it's also worth mentioning that I'm pretty sure there was absolutely no new evidence that was ever entered after those first initial weeks of my quote-unquote investigation that occurred. And I'm pretty sure that's how it goes for a lot of people. They get the key facts, they figure it out in two to three weeks, and they just sit on it. And they do that, of course, because they're afraid of bad press, they're afraid of a scandal, and they hope that if they just wait it out long enough, the survivor will withdraw from the school or give up on the entire process in hopes to move on with their lives and to heal, which is not an unreasonable ask for a survivor. But that's also why these cases shouldn't be dragging on for whole school years and schools should be held accountable for holding their policies in place that they themselves created. But anyway, since that isn't the case and that isn't how it goes. When we see that sort of thing happen, it discourages reporting and and certainly would explain why um, the investigation wouldn't necessarily yield um, a complete and accurate picture of what happened. Uh, Witnesses will leave, uh, witnesses will give up, memories will fade, uh, or maybe witnesses are never even talked to in the first place. Or maybe sometimes even, witnesses are talked to who weren't actually witnesses. When I asked my campus investigator to speak with a drug-facilitated sexual assault expert because he literally said to me, verbatim, that the problem with the investigation was that I didn't remember anything, you know, after being drugged and everything, which was, you know, somebody's whole entire point, it was pretty clear to me that this guy had no idea what he was doing. So I asked him to talk to my advocate, somebody who specializes in drug-facilitated sexual assault prosecutions, who was a prosecutor as a career and now works for a nonprofit. And he did call her, but instead of actually getting the information from her that I was hoping that he would, he just asked her about what I had told her happened that night. He was asking her detailed questions, things that I didn't even remember, like, what did the room look like when I woke up? Was there sunlight there? Questions that she, across the country, could not possibly know the answer to, and questions that he was using to try to find any reason to poke a hole in my story so that I didn't sound credible anymore. Unfortunately for this guy, that didn't work out super well for him. And, disgustingly, it just speaks to the lengths that schools will go to to try to keep predators on campus and discredit a victim who has clear, compelling evidence that what they reported actually occurred. So the inadequacy of the investigation is what I would see more often is the reason why it fails. Um, It's the rare case where I see a thorough investigation performed by a university um, where you can truly say, well, they did the best they could to get to the ultimate truth of what would have happened or what happened in this case. Um, So, again, it has a chilling effect across the board when insufficient resources are provided. And the other component that I see frequently is simply a lack of adequate training um, for the investigators and the other people who respond to complaints of sexual assault. And in large measure, there's a lack of understanding of how victims react to a sexual assault. This point that he's about to talk about is especially important because it just speaks to how victims are damned if they do, damned if they don't, no matter how they react to the trauma that they experience that, again, will be different for every single survivor and will be different in every single scenario. So many Survivors, for example, will react initially with denial, with denying what really happened. They will delay reporting, and they will continue to have contact with the perpetrator in that period of time. And then they are questioned when they do finally report as to, well, how can we believe you if you spent the last three, four, five weeks continuing to have voluntary contact with the perpetrator? Well, we don't really believe you. When, meanwhile, it's very common for, for, for victims to delay reporting, 
um, and to have tried to restore normalcy to the environment by staying close to the perpetrator or just not feeling they have the power or strength to separate themselves from the perpetrator. So the lack of information that is properly trained into the university officials who respond to sexual violence complaints is, I would say, at least half the time in the cases I see is the reason why the response was failed to, to get to where it needed to be. Um, they will be trying to go to class, trying to keep a schedule, trying to adhere to you know their exam schedule. They will try all these things to try to put their lives back in place, but they are still struggling. But that should not indicate to an investigator that there's no truth to what they alleged. Uh, but frequently that's the type of misinterpretation that you see. And that misinterpretation, of course, goes back to a lack of understanding about how people respond to trauma. There's a stereotypical idea that every survivor who goes through something traumatic, especially a sexual assault or a rape, is going to completely crumble and fall apart afterwards, but that's not always the case. The semester that I was raped, even though I required some extensions and a couple of other things to give me a little bit of a boost to get through the semester, I got A's in all of my classes. From the outside in, that might have been something that somebody could look at and say, well look, clearly nothing happened because this didn't affect her at all, but that couldn't be further from the truth. I had such a difficult time studying, focusing, doing all of that, I just had to work extra hard to do it. And you would never know that I would have needed extensions. That was something that I did that I never had to tell anyone about other than the professor. And there was also just a stubborn part of me that said, I'm not going to let this person ruin my life. I'm not going to let this person ruin this program that I've sunk years of my life into that I would really like to complete with really good grades just in case for some stupid reason I want to do a postdoc one day. I wasn't about to let one person take that away from me. And because of things I had been through in my past, I knew that even though I was going through a time of extreme hardship, it didn't have to completely destroy me and my goals. But again, that's how I responded to it. Not everybody responds that way. The whole moral of the story is, of course, it would be completely normal for it to completely throw you off, but if it doesn't, that doesn't say that it didn't happen. Michael Dolce talks about that a little bit more, too. So there's a number of factors that go into how somebody responds to sexual violence. Um, if they have a prior history of abuse of some sort, particularly child abuse, then they may respond in a way that deepens some of the dysfunction and that was already existing in their lives. They may have had an imbalance between their academic lives and their social lives, for example, and that imbalance may tip even deeper. Um, and it's one of the things that creates a distortion in how the survivor is looked is viewed. Um, I've had plenty of clients who, following a sexual assault, um, actually excel in their academic arena. And the reason they're excelling is because now they are afraid to spend any time at all in social settings, they avoid people, they isolate, and so what they try to do is appear as normal as possible. So how do they do that? Well, they devote themselves more than ever to their studies, and they start to excel at the studies, and they're trying to convince themselves and others that, look, I'm fine. I'm getting straight A's for the first time in my life. Um, meanwhile, they are afraid to go out and spend any time socializing with peers or developing relationships, you know, as would any other college student. And so that distortion creates a, a truly distorted picture and an imbalance in the development of that of that, of that student. So we, we do see that sort of impact. We also see an impact on other family relationships. You know, one of the reasons why survivors will not always report a college sexual assault is because they're afraid that their parents will find out or their other fa extended family members will find out that they will be viewed as a failure. Okay, first time away from home and look what happens. 
you drank too much and then you got sexually assaulted and you know and then that victim blaming goes on so to avoid that people will just not want to report for fear that someone will tell their their family back home um so then that breaks down the family relationships because people feel that well i can't trust my family and um i have this major event in my life and i can't lean on them for support so you see the disintegration of that in the worst case scenario we see students become self-destructive um, I've had clients who have attempted to commit suicide and, and have engaged in other forms of self-harm, like self-mutilation, development of eating disorders, things of that nature. Um, so that that would be among the universe of, of impact that we see. Um, it will certainly, unfortunately, accompany um, this kind of sexual victimization on a, on a campus. All of the different ways that sexual assault and rape and trauma impact a survivor after they go through it can't be seen on the surface a lot of the time. Unless you're the person living through it, it's very unlikely that you're aware of exactly how many sleepless nights they have or how many nights they wake up screaming in the night. You probably won't notice right away if they've lost or gained weight. You're not going to know exactly how it's affecting the way that they relate to other people, whether they're going out, whether they're staying in, if the reasons for doing that are what they're saying. There are so many complexities that go into dealing with trauma that aren't apparent on the surface. So things like doing well in school can't be taken at face value. They should have absolutely no place and no bearing in considering an investigation and in considering what the outcome of that investigation should be. And also, while I was at it, I just wanted to ask about what kind of imposition these investigations have on students who go forward and report and feel that they're not being taken seriously, which is the case far more frequently than it should be. Here's what he had to say. What we see in this instance is that if the university is not responding adequately to the survivor by saying, okay, well, we have the investigative resources, we're gonna interview with, we're gonna get this evidence, we're gonna look for security camera footage, whatever it is that might be relevant in a case. There are survivors who try to compensate for that by trying to do it themselves, by trying to get to come forward and talk and, and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, in any instance, the survivor is going to be at a disadvantage because one dies and they're trying to deal with that at the same time as they're dealing with the dynamics that any survivor would deal with, which is, well, I want to maintain my privacy as much as possible, for example. I don't want everybody to know what happened to me. He cuts out a bit again, but he goes on to talk about how survivors will try to take it on themselves, but they don't know who the witnesses are. They don't have the resources to go conduct an investigation that maybe the school is conducting, and they really don't know what kind of tricks the school or anybody else has up their sleeves. If they've made a report, particularly a Title IX report, to complain about a faculty member or another student, um, and then comes time for a disciplinary hearing, um, in many instances they realize, well, there's witnesses here who have not been brought forth. So much like if somebody is subject to a crime and society at large. It is the state government or the federal government that comes in and conducts the prosecution. And the survivor of that crime is not expected to gather up all the evidence. I mean, if you think about, you know, an obvious example, if somebody's home is robbed, the police don't come in and say, okay, well, here's a fingerprint kit. Go around and get the fingerprints for us <laughs> um, and check with your neighbors and see if any of them have security cameras that may have caught the license tag of, of the person and let us know what you find. I mean, that, that is the functional equivalent of what many universities do when they basically do little to nothing to gather the evidence to um, conduct a student disciplinary hearing uh, for a student who has been accused of committing a sexual offense. And it really doesn't serve 
certainly doesn't serve the survivor well, but it also doesn't serve the accused well either. Um, you know, the accused, much like in any prosecution um, in society at large, the accused is entitled to the government conducting a thorough investigation before those charges are brought to, right? So um, certainly among universities, I, I think they have to think of it in those terms. You know, how would the police handle a situation if it was somebody's home being robbed? Um, let's, let's gather the evidence. Let's not expect the homeowner to do that. And while we're on the topic of schools making survivors go collect their own evidence, let's go back to the beginning of things here for a little bit. So, for example, when I first reported, the very first thing that I did before even really reporting was just go to Campus Health so that I could get a drug test done to see if I had any kind of drug in my system. That was the very first thing I did. And it was the first of a series of epic fails by the university. And it all started from the second that I walked into Campus Health. I walked in, they have you write down on a little paper what you're there for, and I said I wanted to be tested for date rape drugs. I didn't even know what to ask for because it's never been on my mind to know what date rape drugs are and to be current on that information because that isn't my job. However, you could say that it is the job of the nurses who work in a campus of 45,000 people with a large Greek system where date rape drugs are rampant. However, as it turns out, for some curious purpose... This campus health did not have any set protocol for testing for date rape drugs, which is quite honestly ridiculous in a form of cover-up in itself. One person asked me if I wanted to get a rape kit, and I walked in to that campus health center that morning disoriented, confused, and unsure of what point a rape kit would even be if I knew who I had been out with and could easily prove that. So I said no, because it seemed like it would be a major disruption to my day, and I wasn't really thinking clearly at the time. Nobody bothered to explain to me what a rape kit was, what its purpose was, why it would be helpful. Nobody asked me anything about if I had blacked out for a certain amount of time, if I knew who I was with. Nobody asked me those questions. They treated me like I was the first person on earth to ever walk in and ask for a date rape drug test, except for the person who saw the reason that I was there, the receptionist, and who was the one responsible for setting me up with a nurse. She looked pissed off because, according to her, she sees it all the time. So they sent me in to talk with this nurse, and I wasn't really sure about what she was going to test me for, but I trusted that she would know what the date rape drugs are. That's what I was hoping for. Unfortunately, what actually happened was she sent me up to the lab, she ordered a test for what she said were three drugs, and I assumed that would have been, after I got home and researched it a little bit more, the top three drugs, which would be Rohypnol, GHB, and Ketamine. She didn't even do that. She ordered a test for the three different strains of Rohypnol, which pretty much nobody even uses anymore as a drug entirely. And then, a couple days later, when unsurprisingly the test results came back that they were negative, she also had the nerve to tell me that I just needed to be more careful with who I hung out with and I need to watch how much I'm drinking and basically it was all my fault. It didn't even bother me because I knew that she was insane. And I had asked her if she could please retest my substances, send my samples back to different labs so that they could be tested for drugs that people actually use these days, which I had by then looked into more because it was about a week later. 
and she tried to resist, so I grabbed some poor unsuspecting person who worked in the lab and dragged her downstairs with me and brought her into the room and told her that she needed to be my witness, and then I proceeded to ask the nurse again to find my samples, which I had been on the phone talking to different labs about for the past couple hours who said that they were going to discard my samples in the next two days if I didn't get a new order to retest them. All this I had to do by myself went back into the nurse's office and then had that lady watch me and say that I wasn't leaving until she sent my samples to be tested to the right place for the right substances. Of course, by now I know there are so many that it was a futile point to begin with, but at the time it was just absurd to me that they wouldn't even had a protocol for this type of thing. And to be fair, that is completely absurd. It's ridiculous. And another thing that they don't tell you is that testing substances from urine or blood for a medical purpose has a different weight to it than it does for a forensic purpose because you're technically not following a certain chain of command. Like, first of all, that's insane because who in a lab somewhere in Minnesota or Pennsylvania or wherever it was that my labs ended up is going to think, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just tamper with this sample so that it looks like this person was drugged with something crazy. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody even knows why it's being sent out there. But anyway, it's just important for people to know that in court, should it ever go to court, which of course it won't 99% of the time, but should it ever actually get that far, it's probably going to be contested if you go to a medical doctor and you don't actually go in for a forensic exam and you have date rape drug testing done. So anyway, long story short, after fighting with a nurse and dragging in a random witness, the nurse did send off my samples to be tested for other substances at different places. Unfortunately, those samples then went missing. One of them was tested for ketamine, which didn't make sense based on my symptoms, and it came back negative, and then another one of my samples, which was going to be tested for GHB, came back as cancelled. And also, it's worth noting that those samples actually went missing for various months and weren't tested until months later, and I have no idea what kind of conditions they were being stored in, if they were being transported, I have no idea about any of that. But I do know that one of the investigators told me that every day that goes by, they lose a little bit more of their value. So whatever I had been drugged with was getting out of that sample a little bit more every single day that they ever so coincidentally lost my samples for over two months. And this is why I don't trust campuses with anything to do with sexual assault. First of all, they didn't test me for the right thing. Secondly, they didn't even have a protocol in the first place. Third, they lost my samples, which I had to fight to get retested. And then eventually they just canceled them. And that was that. I asked Michelle from Endrape on campus what she thought about the idea of basically forensic testing, drug testing, date rape drug testing, and rape kits being done on a campus because it seems pretty much like common sense that there should be some way for a student to get a rape kit done on a campus and to get date rape drug testing done on a campus. It seemed completely crazy to me that there was absolutely no way for this to be done and I lived in a small enough city where it was actually not a big deal to be able to go to the hospital and get a sexual assault kit done for me because I had transportation and I was able to afford that ride. However, that's not the case in many places around the country. She explains a little better. That idea about whether or not, you know, um, an FRE, a forensic rape examination kit or, you know, um, or predatory drug testing kits, if that should be provided by the institution. Um, the conversations that I've had with law enforcement have been very clear. In their perspective, doing um, 
allowing institutions to collect evidence in that way disrupts the chain the the chain of evidence for them if they are if there's a possibility of a criminal case so that's their perspective um the other way that i look at this is you know how can we be certain that an institution has the appropriate equipment to collect this evidence and keep it safe um and this this idea comes from the very real mistrust that exists between students and uh, their administrations. You know, um, I think it's a lot to ask a student to trust that their institution is going to properly take their rape kit, properly test it, and then the the um, the results would be used in the Title IX case. Which is kind of ironic because, as we know from a half a million person rape kit backlog, you can't exactly trust the police with that either. I just don't see institutions funding that. Um, and I don't see institutions rushing to put themselves in, in a situation where they would be responsible for collecting and testing evidence. Which, like, honestly, thank God for that, because if it was anything like it went for me, then campuses absolutely have no business touching a sample of a person who thinks that they have been drugged by another person and who is going to have a criminal case open and who might have a university case open at some point, too. So it's almost like you're caught between this idea of, like, should the universities have more responsibility to be able to provide for their students, or should they just stay completely out of it because they're too incompetent and they're not going to handle it correctly anyways? And the thing is, that second part leaves them off the hook, because apparently nobody is competent enough to handle these cases. But what kind of disservice does that do for students who go to school in very rural places, in isolated places? I think around that, because students are like, well, I don't want to have to go far. And there's, I mean, in this country, it's, it's very real that um, someone may have to travel three, four, five, six hours to the closest hospital that has an actual program and that's just not acceptable either. Definitely not acceptable and while we're at it let's talk a little bit more about the other resources that are available at universities. The number one thing that every single person told me and that I've heard echoed from other people is that as soon as you're raped or sexually assaulted everybody for some reason wants to get you immediately into counseling. I've talked about counseling in previous episodes it's not right for everybody not everybody has to do it there are so many different modalities of therapy that it doesn't make sense to have one person or every person do the same exact thing, but it is an option and it is something that is basically, believe me when I say, pretty much immediately pushed on survivors. I've already talked a little bit about how that can be something that's stressful for survivors to consider because if you're thinking about it from the criminal perspective, you don't want your records to be subpoenaed in court. That's private information that's protected that should never be available to the public for any reason. However, at universities, it's really interesting that Melissa brought up that her counselor told her that reporting was only going to make her life harder. That sounds like something that would enable them to get out of having to report numbers for the Clery Act. And ironically, I also went through a very similar situation. It's almost like it's part of some handbook that they give to counselors of sexual assault specifically on college campuses to read to the person who goes in reporting that they were just sexually assaulted. When I told the one and only sexual assault specific counselor on a campus of 45,000 students that I had been raped and told her what I had done so far in the process that made me feel more empowered, she said, you came here to go to school. 
not to report a crime. You may want to reconsider how you're using your energy. Now, luckily for me, I was a 28-year-old graduate student at the time. I had all these years of life under me, and I completely brushed off her comment because I knew how I was going to handle it, and I knew that she wasn't being helpful, and I hung up, and I never spoke with her again. I did report her for saying something like that, and of course, she still works there, but that was a clear discouragement from reporting, which is a federal violation. The fact that the university did absolutely nothing to address this speaks volumes about the way that that university chooses to handle their sexual assault cases. And the fact that they have people actively discouraging people from reporting who are working for them and they're not concerned about it at all, that says a whole bunch of other stuff too. But it all leads back to the same thing. They do not want to be held responsible for investigating sexual assault cases, reporting these cases, or taking them seriously in any way. They see these students as nuisances. And yes, even though it is true that reporting criminally is incredibly painful and takes a lot of energy and has been the most draining experience of my life in so many different ways, it doesn't give anybody else the right to tell me what to do or what not to do. Victim Advocate 101 classes basically teach you that you should never tell a victim what they should do. It's up to them. It's what makes them feel empowered. It's what makes them feel more in control of their life again because control and power was just taken from them. And what's important is that they find ways to be able to get that back and reestablish that in their lives. The point is that these very basic things, protocol at the very least at Campus Health and having counselors that don't discourage victims from reporting if that's what they have decided they want to do very clearly or for any other reason, if they're still deciding whatever, the fact that these are questionably being implemented at universities around the entire country is horrific. So then, what rights do students really have under Title IX when they come forward to report that they've been raped? How are these very apparently ill-equipped or unwillingly able-to-be-equipped universities supposed to be protecting their right to get an education just like anybody else if they can't even do these very basic things? If the investigators are never trained in what they should be trained in, and if oftentimes the outcome is something that doesn't favor the student who risked everything to report it? It, we would always assert that under Title IX, there is a responsibility on the part of the university to restore the environment in which the sexual assault survivor is attempting to complete their studies. The responsibility to make sure that environment is free of sexual harassment, and that would include free of being exposed to any prolonged or substantial interaction with the perpetrator, even if the perpetrator has been found not responsible during a student conduct process number of reasons why that may happen. And I just want to talk a little bit about why that may not happen for a variety of reasons. And that brings me back to my absolute favorite topic ever, which as you may all know by now is this whole topic of a burden of proof. A lot of universities such as mine will have you fooled into thinking at the Title IX office that all it takes as a burden of proof for them to get rid of a rapist or make a finding against a rapist as it works on these campus investigations is all that they need is to have what they say and what they said to me over and over again, 50% and a feather of proof in your favor to be able to make a finding for you against the perpetrator. And in this situation, as you might remember, the person who makes the complaint is the complainant, the person who it's against is called the respondent. But just because that's the policy and the law and the protocol, and the way that it's supposed to be done, and the words that they say to you as a survivor to try to convince you to report, 
if they're going to try to convince you to report at all, that's actually not what they're going off of. Much like how people seem to not understand what probable cause is, this is exactly the same kind of situation but in the campus setting. 50% and a feather of proof is literally right around probable cause and what that should be. However, in my situation, although the case was supposed to be wrapped up within 60 to 90 days, 90 days as an absolute maximum, which was the very end of the semester since this happened to me right at the beginning of the semester, when I called to find out the status of the case at the end of that semester, the investigator working on my case told me that if they were going to make a finding against the professor, they had to be, quote, bulletproof in making their finding, which sounds a lot more serious and intense to me and a much more higher burden of proof than just 50% and a feather. There is no defending that statement. It's not like you would go around giving officers 50% and a feather bulletproof vest. Bulletproof means bulletproof. It means it can't be broken. It means that in the event that this professor goes ahead and sues them for wrongful termination, there's absolutely no way that he could win. It has nothing to do with the harm that was done to me, the survivor. It has nothing to do with what was actually right and what the actual truth of the matter is. And it has everything to do with them protecting themselves from getting sued. And I think it's also worthwhile to mention that after they told me this is when I finally got a lawyer because I knew they weren't taking me seriously. And I very sincerely doubt that they would have made a finding for me had I not gotten a lawyer. And that, of course, is a ridiculous burden to be placing on students in something that should not even be involving lawyers in the first place. That puts people at such a disadvantage. I had family who was willing to help me pay for an attorney who was high-powered and who was respected around the country for working on Title IX investigations. What if I hadn't had that? What then? How was I supposed to go up against this professor who had this attorney who apparently is scary to some people around town for some reason that I still can't quite figure out. How am I supposed to go up against that when I have absolutely nobody fighting for me in my corner and then therefore have no leverage, no way to file a lawsuit against the university, which is what, of course, they were afraid of from both of our ends. And that's why they had to be bulletproof rather than just make a finding on 50% in a feather, which is literally what they go on different news stations and talk about, what they post on their website, and what they say that even if a student doesn't have that much evidence or any corroborative evidence, it shouldn't dissuade them from coming forward. Well, after finding out that in order for your complaint to be taken seriously, it needs to be bulletproof, I think that that's something that they should probably be transparent about. Because think of it from the survivor's perspective. Let's say that they didn't find for me. Let's say that because they told me that they had to be 100% bulletproof in making a decision, they didn't find for me. And then to the public, what that looks like, and to everybody who's in my circle, and to everybody who knows what's going on, what that looks like is that even though all they needed was 50% and a feather's worth of evidence, they couldn't find that. How is that going to reflect on the survivor? Completely unfairly, that's how. Universities need to be straightforward when they're talking about exactly how they're going to be making their findings and what kind of proof that they need. They should be providing examples of situations where they were able to find for the student because asking a student to suffer through a months or years long investigation that's supposed to take 30 days while they're trying to go to class and while they're trying to heal and move on with their lives is completely ridiculous. And if they already know, 
that at the end of the day, their finding is going to be that they are not going to do anything that supports the survivor. Why are they telling us that in the first place? Why? They're setting us up for pain, for failure, and to not be believed. And if you can't even find for somebody based on 50% and a feather's worth of evidence, and you have a criminal investigation going on at the same time, that completely lets the police off the hook as well. It's ridiculous. If a university can't even make a 50% and a feather finding against a person, then the police have no reason to do anything beyond arrest a person if they're going to actually follow the law for what probable cause is for an arrest, which, as you may remember, is right around 50% and a feather. This issue of transparency and accountability is so painful that Michelle from End Rape on Campus said that it's the number one thing that students are upset about. And it makes perfect sense. Of course, students want accountability and transparency in the process, especially this process that even more so than the criminal investigation somehow is such an issue. I asked Michael Dolce what he thought could be done in these situations where universities are painfully non-transparent about how they hold people accountable. If universities are really doing the best that they can or are really on the cutting edge of fighting sexual violence on their campus, as some presidents may claim, whose emails I may have filtered into my spam category, but anyway, if they really are doing that, then why are they so afraid of the public actually finding out more specific details about what kind of findings they're making, what kind of complaints they have, and how those two relate to each other? So the first part of the issue that you've raised is the right of the public to access that type of data, the data of, of how often sex crimes are reported and investigated and what the outcomes are and the other components of that that can be objective measuring sticks, if you will. Um, so that can oftentimes be governed by state law. Um, so it would depend, you know, Arizona might have one outcome and Florida may have another and Pennsylvania may have another. Um, mm -hmm. So you would certainly have to look at that in the first instance. I would think if, if, if any, any kind of Title IX administrator and any campus law enforcement official would want to know what that data shows, would want to make sure that the data doesn't reflect an inadequate or an inept response to assertions of, that sexual violence has occurred. So I would certainly at a minimum hope that the people who administer these two processes, again, law enforcement as well as Title IX, would access that data in connection with doing their job duties, conducting their job duties. Um, I, th I would say if a member of the public finds themselves stymied by state laws that may restrict access to certain information, which can occur in a couple of, for a couple of different reasons, um, then I would encourage contacting the state elected officials and say, what can we do to change the laws or what can you do as a legislative body, for example, to demand that you take a look, you know, that you be provided access to that information. Because oftentimes on a case-by-case -case basis, that information contains sensitive identifying information about survivors of sexual violence that don't want their identities known. But there can also be state laws applied, as we have here in Florida in particular, that allow access to that type of data, provided the identifying information is first redacted from any documentation. Um, so that you can get the essential information without being able to identify who the individuals were who were involved. Um, so I, I would think that it's certainly legitimate to be very concerned about whether or not the response by law enforcement or Title IX officials is adequate. Uh, the data that you've outlined would be important to figure that out. Um, so I would essentially ask two questions. One is, 
is that data available under the laws applicable in the given state? Um, and of course, if not, as I said, take some other steps to try to access that data. Um, and the other question would be, does the, do the, does the government in any respect require that that analysis be performed and reported by these colleges and universities? Because that would be the other option, um, is to mandate that the institutions perform that exact analysis. Um, and, and, and provide that information. Nothing like strong-arming your institution into doing the right thing by creating new laws that mandate it. Just saying. And also, while we jump back for a second to this idea of the burden of proof that's used in these investigations, he had a little bit more to say about that. When we talk about was a particular burden of proof met, those burdens of proof are largely subjective in terms of has the proof level been achieved. Um, so if we talk about the preponderance of the evidence versus um, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, we, need, we even put that issue in criminal cases in the hands of a jury, and reasonable juries could disagree with one another as to whether or not the government has met that burden of proof. Just like we have, you know, the classic example is you go into any trial, whether it's a civil trial or where I may have a preponderance of, of evidence standard versus a criminal trial where I may have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You can have a hung jury where half the jury says, well, yeah, we think the burden of proof is in that. The other half says, no way, no how. You know, so it is subjective. And so the the if a university is applying that, applying whatever the standard of proof is, um, that standard of proof um, gives some guidepost, but is not concrete and objective because people are still going to administer this process. What I would always be wary of is whether or not there are some built-in biases in terms of a university response that says, well, we have a published burden of proof of preponderance of the evidence, you know, but then that the how they define that and how people in practice define that starts to be colored by um, biases and lack of information about perpetrators, for example. So there may be a tendency to say, well, gosh, I just really can't believe that this particular student who is accused of this sex crime uh, could possibly do this because they have straight A's, okay? If, if the fact finder is making those types of conclusions, it means the prosecution has not done their job of bringing in sufficient um, information to a jury by way of an expert who could come in and say, listen, you know, there is no educational barrier or accomplishment barrier. It's just because somebody has a lot to lose from uh, the standpoint of their, their future, because they're a straight A student, or because they're a star athlete. You know, the, what the jury, whoever the fact finder is, needs to understand is, that that doesn't govern whether or not somebody is willing to commit a sex crime. Um, you know, we have people at all level of success and all level of, shall we say, superficial failure in life who commit sex crimes. You know, we have some the most highly educated, professionally successful people who commit sex crimes, and then we have people who are of um, fairly modest financial means and of, of fairly modest success in their in their work lives who commit sex crimes on both ends. The, that has to be pointed out by a prosecutor to, to any jury or any disciplinary panel in a university or college. They need to understand that sex crimes know no socioeconomic barrier. They know no accomplishment barrier. You know, we have corporate CEOs we have, who commit these crimes. We have star athletes that commit these crimes. And then we have people who are literally, you know, homeless and, and hardly have two nickels strapped together to commit these crimes. Um, it is simply that nature of crime. It's not an economic-based crime. Um, 
it's a crime driven by other dynamics that have nothing to do with success or how charming somebody is or how clean cut they are or not. Um, these are just, it's just, it's, it is a type of crime that infects all strata of society. And it's important that the, whoever's presenting that case, uh, make sure that that is emphasized as, as part of it. That the fact finder should not allow those dynamics to color their determination of whether or not the burden of proof is met. And universities especially, it's not that they don't have this understanding, it's just that they don't care. Especially when you look at student-athletes, some of the most privileged people on campus as far as being protected by the university under these types of crimes, the outcome is pretty sad. And it could be a whole entire episode on its own, and maybe, honestly, in the future it will be. But it's just something that I wanted to mention, because student-athletes disproportionately commit some of the most cases of domestic violence and rape on campuses, and as recent reports have pointed out, they just can get passed off to the next university, or maybe their victims leave the school before the investigation is ever complete, which is common in many cases. So student-athletes, especially with their privilege of being student-athletes and being people who are bringing in an insane amount of money for the university, they are incredibly protected. This has been demonstrated at several different universities. But going back even further to this idea of that if ultimately in the end, some university doesn't even find for the survivor who came forward or the survivors who came forward, they still have a responsibility to protect their survivors and ensure that they are able to receive an education that they signed up for, free of harassment, free of intimidation, free of sexual assault. I asked Michael Dolce to explain a little bit more about the rights that survivors are afforded no matter what the finding is from the university. Well, I, I think the best way to, to, to address those issues from the university's perspective is to look at the integrity of the process that they apply. And I say that in two respects. As I mentioned a moment ago, the thoroughness of an investigation um, and the, the dedication of adequate resources to conduct a timely investigation and a skilled one is very important to making sure that the outcome is one that everybody can say was the, you know, the best possible outcome, that it was a, a proper professional, fully informed, properly staffed um, effort to get to the truth of the matter. Um, Nobody can complain about it if that was what happened. That's the first component. The second component, I think, is, is equally important. That is to recognize that even if the university brings a charge against a student for a breach of student code of conduct by committing a sexual crime um, or against a faculty member, likewise, in either instance, it's very important under the Title IX requirements thereafter at the conclusion of that process if the accused is going to remain in the environment, to recognize that the survivor may still have requirements and that maintaining the order and the, the uh, sense of safety and sense of comfort in that educational microcosm um, is advanced in only one way, and that is by making sure there are adequate barriers to prevent the, the now formerly accused and the former accuser from having to share not just the space um, in, in the abstract, but to really share the educational experience going forward. It is unreasonable to expect that somebody who has stepped forward in good faith and said, I believe I was sexually victimized, then say, well, if there was a failure of adequate evidence to impose a sanction or remove this person from the environment, so therefore we have to act like nothing ever happened. That is unrealistic. 
and in many instances is going to breach the rights of that survivor under Title IX. Because again, whatever disciplinary process is applied is not the beginning and the end of the Title IX requirement to restore and maintain an environment that is free of sexual harassment. Um, you know, it's, it's important to look at the law itself. The law is very simple. The Title IX law says in so many words that it is unlawful for any institution of education that receives federal funds to allow sexual harassment or sexual violence to exist within that environment. It doesn't say anything about in the event there is a sexual claim, sex-based claim of misconduct, then you must do a disciplinary process and then you're done. That's not what it says. It simply says you must do what's necessary to make sure that that educational environment is free of sexual harassment. And the courts have been clear that it is sexual harassment um, in many instances, if not most instances, to leave a, a sex crime victim exposed to somebody who, um, in good faith, they feel has committed a crime of sexual violence against them. And I would certainly draw a distinction there. There are things that can, you know, that might give rise to a sexual harassment claim that are not really illegal sexual misconduct, that are not acts of sexual violence. So if somebody is telling, for example, off-color jokes, um, that might reflect a certain level of insensitivity or immaturity on the part of that perpetrator and that that causes offense to, to somebody else in that environment. Well, that is something that we can correct with a certain amount of um, uh, discipline, a certain amount of education, some disciplinary training, and excuse me, some sensitivity training. Um, we can kind of correct that and we, and we can say, okay, you're not going to communicate any longer with the, with the person that you offended. That's easy enough to resolve without necessarily going to the extreme of having to remove somebody from the environment or separate their schedules, that sort of thing. It can be a learning process for everyone. But an act of sexual violence that rises to the level of a crime is a very different experience, extremely personal for the survivor, and it's one with a lasting effect and one where the survivor would be more than um, appropriate to believe that they are not comfortable from a mental health perspective being exposed to the perpetrator, of seeing that perpetrator walk around in the environment, be part of their educational experience, um, or even be effectively endorsed in that process. So I think the university psychologists have to recognize all of that has an impact on whether they've met that Title IX requirement to eliminate the sexual harassment and sexual violence from the, from the environment. But it's always important, I think, that universities and colleges recognize that the student disciplinary process is separate from the Title IX process, as much as the one they borrow from the other. Um, the fact of the matter is the duty under Title IX is not excused simply because the disciplinary process has not found the perpetrator responsible. There are still things the university can and should do, um, much like they would do in any other instance where there is a conflict between two students and the university can't sort out the ultimate truth. Um, there are ways to make sure that the students are not crossing paths, are not substantially involved in each other's educational processes, and it really is for the, the, the betterment of everybody involved, both the, the complaining party as well as the accused party as well as the peer group, that um, the university maintains them as separate. And if the perpetrator is a faculty member, then there's the additional component of making sure that proper monitoring is put into place and proper accountability is put into place um, to make sure there are not any further problems, um, even if, again, the level of proof required to conduct a disciplinary process against a student or against a faculty member has not been met in a given case, um, it's still important to look at the bigger picture 
of maintaining an environment where that type of problem does not continue to infect the educational process for a student. Um, and, and certainly in that respect, um, it helps the entire community if the restoration of the environment is achieved um, without keeping two people who are obviously at odds in the same place, um, as well as the broader safety issues. And the last thing I would add to that is that it's important to honor the truth of the person who has asserted their, their claim. They should have the right to speak their truth. They should have the right to tell other people, listen, despite what the disciplinary process determined against this other student or faculty member, this is what happened to me. They should have that right um, to express themselves and express their truth without being accused of any kind of retaliation or any kind of other disciplinary problem. And I've, unfortunately, I've seen students silenced um, by universities um, on the pretext that um, the disciplinary process didn't find anything and there's been no police arrest and therefore, um, you know, you can't say bad things about this person. Um, no, the survivor's truth is the survivor's truth. They should be allowed to speak it like any other truth. But again, it's very difficult for a survivor to speak their truth if the university who has such a low standard of proof required to make a finding for them doesn't make that finding for them. It would be effectively silencing to anybody to not be believed, and that's just completely unfair. Especially when the evidence is in your favor and the university really has no excuse to make a finding based on exactly what it was that you reported. But the crazy thing to me is that even when a university does make a finding in your favor, it can still feel like a slap in the face. They minimize it, just like Michael Dolce was saying in the last episode. Even when they find for a student, they downplay it so that it won't look so bad for them, but they still can't really face legal action from the student or from the person who the student reported. And just real quick, it's also really important to point out that a university may actually want students to complain to them first before taking any legal action because then it's their chance at doing damage control to avoid being sued. If a student goes straight to a lawyer and doesn't go through the university process, the university loses control. That's just something I really wanted to point out pretty quickly. But anyway, like I had sort of mentioned at the beginning of this episode, after seven months of waiting, I got a random email in the middle of a day that said something such as this. It said that the Title IX office, or whatever they call it on that campus, completed its investigation concerning my allegations, and that the professor engaged in sexually harassing conduct towards me by engaging in physical sexual acts towards me when he knew or should have known that I was incapable of consenting to such acts. And later on, due to the serious nature of the conduct, they recommended that significant action be taken to address the policy violation. Now, at first, I was like, okay, that's great. That sounds like a really good thing. It was a huge weight off my shoulders for about two seconds until I realized serious action doesn't necessarily mean removing him from the campus. And because of the secrecy of all of their investigations, I got really concerned that they weren't going to do such a thing. And so you would think that I would have had some right to that information, what was actually going to be done to this person because of my involvement in this process. However, they would not tell me anything. I asked and they said that it was protected by employment law, which quite honestly is ridiculous. 
I called them about a month afterwards, which just so happened to be around graduation time, which I was completely unaware of since I'm in the middle of a doctoral program, which takes forever, and I most definitely was not graduating. And I called up the Title IX officer, and I asked her if she could please explain to me what exactly they were going to do to take action against this individual. She told me that she knew that it was the end of the semester and everybody wants answers at the end of the semester and everybody wants closure at the end of the semester when graduation is happening and I thought she was completely crazy because I had no idea what she was talking about because I didn't even realize that it was graduation time at this moment when she was talking about this. But then she went on to basically avoid the question. I believe the conversation lasted somewhere between 20 to 30 minutes and she never actually told me. And at the end, I got frustrated. I just simply told her that I felt like she was treating me like I was the problem when all I wanted to know is what action was being taken against this person that they had found violated their policy in a significant way. And she said that she would try to find out for me. And again, this was a month after they had actually found against this person. So then another couple of months go by, and at the end of the year when they just so happened to renew or not renew contracts, I found out that this person was not going to be back for the following year and that they were no longer affiliated with the university in relation to the investigation, but they never actually said if they fired this person or not. It's still a mystery. And like, this is just so crazy to me because it speaks to the lack of transparency on behalf of the school. Like, if they had actually done this the right way, if this was something that could have actually made them look good, like they were taking a stand for students who had been raped by one of their own faculty members, you would think that they would want to put that out there, but they didn't. And then don't even get me started on reporting retaliation to the university. There was one person in particular who retaliated against me very blatantly while the investigation was still ongoing with the school by telling all of my peers and different people in my circle that I was apparently a blackout drunk and made up lots of exciting things about my life that just simply aren't true. Although it would have made my life a lot more exciting, such as things like having a Mexican lover that I apparently don't know about, different things like how I apparently, something about waking up after an Uber drive and not knowing where my panties were, and then just realizing I had just blacked out and forgot the whole thing because of my alleged alcohol problems. Because, of course, when someone drugs you, that just means you're an alcoholic. I mean, the police and the university agree on that, clearly. So, and by the university, I mean this just this one professor who happened to be friends with this guy who got fired. But anyway, even when you tell them about all the different ways that this whole entire process has basically destroyed your life, they write you back over a year later and they tell you that they don't care and they're not taking action. University response to sexual assault is pathetic, and this happened at a university that just claimed to go over a massive overhaul of their sexual violence procedures, protocols, all of that stuff, who hired somebody to come in and change everything, but then, mysteriously, he wasn't the Title IX officer anymore, and he was promoted to a different position outside of the Title IX office. So, you tell me what that really looks like in reality. It's so important that we're always keeping watch of universities who claim to be doing the right thing and really take a look at their words compared to their actions because I can tell you for a fact that at least at this university, all of their words sound so nice, but they are backed by absolutely 0% of the action they claim to be taking. All universities should have a zero-tolerance policy against sexual violence. What does that really mean? I asked Michael Dolce for one final last word about what can really be done to eliminate sexual violence from campuses and what zero tolerance really truly means. 
Well, and I see that term zero tolerance uh, show up on virtually every college university campus nowadays, where they say we're zero tolerance for these crimes. Um, now, prior to having zero tolerance for sex crimes, um, we've had zero tolerance in other arenas. So, for example, zero tolerance um, for weapons on campus or zero tolerance for certain types of drugs. Um, in the past, what zero tolerance for certain drugs or other contraband has meant is if you are caught with those types of things in your possession on our college campus, if you bring that to our four corners, we are going to make you leave. Right? That's what zero tolerance used to mean. But in the arena of sexual violence, I find that zero tolerance is not properly defined. Um, when I have taken deposition testimony from university officials and shown them, okay, here's your policy that says zero tolerance. What does zero tolerance mean? I have yet to have somebody give me a straight answer to that question. Wow. Um, because nobody seems to know what it really means because in practice they understand what's happening. In practice, there is no such thing as zero tolerance in most of these colleges and universities. Zero tolerance means, well, we're going to do something. Okay, well, zero tolerance to me means something else than just doing something. Um, zero tolerance means we don't tolerate it here, okay? You know, I may be raising my children and say, okay, I've got a zero tolerance for you hitting one another, okay? Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to put them out of my house, but it means that there will be a very specific consequence to hitting somebody, okay? So if you hit somebody with a toy, well, guess what? You lose that toy, it's not coming back. It goes, you know, we donate it to Goodwill or something like that, but you're not going to keep that toy. So that's zero tolerance, all right? So the same concept applies here. If you're found responsible for committing a sex crime against a, a fellow student, or if you're a faculty member and commit that against a, against a student or another faculty member, you're done. You're out. Have a nice day. Find a different place to go to school. Find a different place to work. You're not welcome here. Um, that, to me, is what zero tolerance means. But elsewhere, good luck. It's not defined. And I would say to anybody who is considering enrolling in a particular college or university when they see that, I would say that one of the best things to do to challenge that up front is to contact the university administration, contact the admissions office, and say, I would like to know what that means. I would like to know if you have guidelines to say this is what zero tolerance means. Or if you're already in that environment, you're already enrolled in that school, ask that question. We would like to know before there's a problem, what exactly does zero tolerance mean? Okay? Does it mean you've got to set, you know, criteria? Now, if you look at the academic dishonesty policies. Sometimes you will see what zero tolerance really means. If you are caught cheating on a test, for example, you will get a zero and you will be expelled from that class or you're expelled from the university. You know, they will have what really looks like zero tolerance. And then I would ask the next question. Is there a zero tolerance policy for a, an act of sexual misconduct that would constitute a felony under the state laws? Okay. Should that be zero tolerance? Should that result in automatic expulsion from the university? Just what is it? In the absence of that level of certainty, you don't really have zero tolerance. You just have a couple of words on a page that mean nothing. I think it's very important from day one of anyone arriving on a campus, whether it is a faculty member on their first day or a student on their first day, I think it's very important that the university sit down with those individuals and say, okay, let's address the potential for sexual misconduct that occurs here at this university, whether you are a perpetrator of it or somebody who finds themselves victimized by it, we want to talk about exactly what's going to happen in that instance. If you confront it up front like that, the first thing you do is necessarily encourage discussion and an openness and say to people, 
We want to hear about it if it really happens. If you don't say anything about it during orientation for your new students, if you don't say anything about it during the orientation process for your new faculty members, then you have made it less important than all the other things you're going to talk to them about. And that's the wrong message to send in my estimation. I think you have to talk about it on day one. I think it, particularly if you're going to have a zero tolerance policy, it needs to be as important as any other thing you would be, have zero tolerance for. And it needs to be addressed from the beginning of that relationship between the university as a community and that individual who is now joining that community. Um, so the openness of that discussion is going to encourage reporting of sex crimes, reporting of concerns about sexual harassment, and therefore encourage a much healthier response and one that is willing to really address the truth of the matter. Um, so that would be something that I would say is really a guidepost for not just responding properly, but also creating an atmosphere that will discourage predators from acting or even staying. Because, you know, if somebody finds themselves committed to committing acts of sexual harassment or sexual violence, what you want them to understand about your environment is that it truly will not work there, and therefore they should go somewhere else. So I think it's pretty fair to say that what zero tolerance does not look like is having absolutely no protocol for date rape drug testing or explaining what a sexual assault examination kit is to somebody who says that they have just been drugged and raped by somebody. It doesn't look like a sexual assault counselor saying that you might want to consider investing your time in different ways because you came here to go to school and not to get raped and report it. It doesn't look like going into the Title IX office and being told that you can't have an advocate. It doesn't look like going into the Title IX office reporting retaliation and being told that you have to turn off your phone and that you have to sign a paper saying that you're not recording any conversation that you have because they cannot be trusted. It doesn't look like having 14 people out of 45,000 students report sexual assault in a year. It doesn't look like blowing off survivors' concerns about what's going to happen to their perpetrator because it's the end of the year and everybody's looking for closure at graduation even though you're not graduating that year. It doesn't look like saying that all you need to find for someone is 50% and a feather's worth of proof when later on you tell that same exact person that you need to be bulletproof in your finding. It doesn't look like dragging out sexual assault investigations from 30 to 60 days to up to seven months or longer because you don't know what you're doing as an investigator and you hope that the student will quit or drop out because they can't take it anymore, which is a very real possibility, and you know that. Zero tolerance does not look like letting professors who retaliate against students for reporting stay and suffer absolutely no consequences for spreading vile rumors about a student that are simply unfounded and untrue. It doesn't look like taking that report telling the student that they didn't actually file a real report and then having them file a separate report with somebody else because you're a failure of an investigator, if that's what you can even call yourself. And in that vein, it doesn't look like your investigators just being paycheck collectors who don't really care about students at all. It doesn't look like protecting student-athletes from being investigated by police. It doesn't look like keeping survivors separated from one another so that they can never talk to each other, so they can never heal, so that they can never actually know what's going on. It does not look like a total lack of transparency and accountability on behalf of the university and the systems that are supposed to be there to protect students and ensure their right to an equal education. It doesn't look like not testing for the right samples and then losing them for months so that they lose their value when you eventually do find them. It doesn't look like canceling blood tests for no reason at all. It doesn't look like forcing students to hire an expensive 
and well-known attorney just so that they have a chance of being taken somewhat seriously. And it most definitely does not look like not talking to a student anymore after they tell you that they've hired an attorney because they don't believe in you anymore because too many months have passed and you've told them now that the problem with them is that they reported it and they don't remember it because somebody drugged them intentionally. And with that for now, I'm going to wrap up my episodes on campus sexual assault. Again, I may revisit this later depending on certain things that happen and if perhaps I can get some people to talk about student athletes in particular with sexual assault, which is a huge topic right now and as well it should be because it's something that's been ignored for a very long time. So thank you so much again for listening to Surviving Justice, Realities of Reporting Rape. If you have a story that you want to share, you can contact me at survivingjusticepodcast at gmail.com or go to survivingjustice.org and go to the contact form. You can share your story there. I'd like to especially thank Melissa Ann for sharing her story with me and letting me take some licenses and cutting it down and trimming it so that it would fit into this episode. Her story is long and complex, and she has a book coming out that everybody should be excited about, so if you want to follow her, you definitely should. I'd also once again like to thank Carolyn for being such a gracious sharer of information and letting other people know what this process is like for people who are going through it. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there were a lot of people in my department who I didn't think would stand up for me who did, and I just want to talk about how you can be supportive if you're in a similar situation and exactly what it was that these people did for me that kept my faith in humanity alive when I felt like it was completely broken to the core. And this will be my last episode for the year, so I'll see you all in 2020. Have a safe and happy new year, fun travels, good times with friends and family, and I'll see you next year. The people who showed up for me were the ones who expressed concern immediately, who called me when I was out of town, who believed me immediately, who could see it in my face and who could tell and who stood there for me without any qualification, without asking for any explanation or proof, because they knew that I was good for my word and offered me so many words of encouragement and support. And more than anything, some of them even put actions to their words and fought for me on my behalf against the central administration, asking them to do the right thing during my investigative process. Not because I asked them to, or even knew that they were doing it, but because they are people of true integrity, who saw an injustice and truly showed up when it mattered the most. These were people who oftentimes had no tenure, no real standing with the university and could have lost their job at any second for trying to do the right thing for someone like me. I fully recognize how incredibly rare and special it is that the people who were in my department stood up for me and stood by my side and supported me through every step and continue to do so. I don't have the words to express my gratitude to them. Comfortable as it is for you, Think about how it feels for that person who's bearing their soul while the other person, the accused, runs, hides, and never has to say a word. It's important to remember that every single story that comes through is because a survivor is willing to talk about every single uncomfortable detail that we've mentioned in past episodes while the other person hides behind an attorney. So if you happen to be somebody from my university who helped me through this time and who continues to help me and who understands that it's not going to be over until it's over, which will be years from now at this point most likely, thank you so much for your help and thank you so much for helping me survive another year.